Welcome to the Big Law Business Podcast. I'm Josh Block. I produce videos for Big Law Business. I'm joined by Casey Sullivan. Casey both writes for Big Law Business and along with Gabe Friedman, oversees articles. Hello, Casey. Hi, Josh. This is our second podcast. So if you're new to Big Law Business, you can learn more about us at biglawbusiness.com. We cover the business of law and what is happening at the largest U.S. law firms. Casey, what else should our listeners know about Big Law Business? It's a public facing site. It can be found at www.biglawbusiness.com. It features a range of news analysis, information, and commentary all on the business of law. It also features video interviews with general counsel and law firm leaders. On the podcast, we're going to look at some of the notable business of law stories that have happened recently. And right off the bat, we have some follow-up. Last time we talked about the biggest stories of 2015. One of those stories was the criminal trial of three Dewey and LaBeouf executives. There are updates since our last recording. Casey, bring us up to date on the Dewey story. The most recent development was that Steve Davis, the former chairman of Dewey and LaBeouf, walked away. Um, He struck a plea agreement with prosecutors that said that he can no longer practice law in New York for five years and he can also not be an officer at, at a publicly traded company. The other two defendants, Joel Sanders and Steve DeCarmine, are still on the hook and a retrial is scheduled for September. So while Davis is barred from practicing law in New York, he can still advise clients outside of New York. He is living in London now and his attorney said that he's actively looking for work. That's our understanding. He had had a job with with an Arab government uh, a couple years back. Uh, It was a short stint. We don't know where he'll end up landing. It's still up in the air. This is a story you've been following for a long time. What do you think of the fact that Stephen Davis now has a plea deal and these other two executives do not? It's significant in that Davis, at the time of Dewey's collapse, was blamed for the financial mismanagement of the firm. I think that when you look back at the reporting that happened at that time, there was a New York Times story that said in the blame game, uh, (laughs) Davis was number one. And so it's really significant in that light that regardless of the validity of the claims against these defendants, that Davis, who was first to be blamed and based on my discussions with a number of former Dewey and LaBeouf partners, was probably the most hated of of them all. He's walking away. And I think that that probably has to do with the evidence in the case. If you look at the emails, uh, Joel Sanders, the uh, former CFO, had said specific things such as, uh, you know, let's find a clueless auditor or, you know, referring to fake income. But when Dewey's downfall was happening, it was really Steve Davis's name that was brought up all the time and Steve DeCarmine to a lesser extent. But I, I, I hadn't even really heard of Joel Sanders until this whole criminal trial got brought up. From what I've read so far, one of the reasons that Davis accepted his plea deal or I should say one of the reasons that that DeCarmine and Sanders didn't accept the plea deals that they were offered because they were also offered plea deals is that they just they weren't as good. They did, they weren't as light as the one that Davis got. Also, while we still wait for an outcome in the cases against Sanders and DeCarmine, there's yet another case altogether against a younger Dewey defendant, Zachary Warren, who at the time of the alleged wrongdoing was a junior manager at Dewey. He since, I think, completed a law degree and was practicing. His trial was split from the other defendants and is set for March. So there will still be new developments in 2016 in this seemingly never-ending story of Dewey's collapse. 
There has been another near merger in Big Law. Brian Cave and Dick Steen Shapiro were in talks. What happened there? The last that we heard was that the talks concluded between Brian Cave and Dick Steen Shapiro. Meanwhile, there's been a handful of other departures uh, from the firm, including their uh, managing partner of their L.A. office, James Turkin, who we spoke with uh, this week. And so it's... uh, it's really up in the air. Uh, one of our sources told us that Dickstein leadership has said that they're exploring a number of strategic options. One would assume that that would be another combination uh, with, a, with a larger firm. But so far, the firm has declined to comment. Uh, we have Lee Abramson, who's, who's on the ground, uh, reporting as much as she can on it. So um, stay tuned. With what we have on it and what you've already printed, I think it'd be helpful and interesting to a lot of people if you can give some insight on how you report on a merger like this. What do you need to know before you publish and how how many sources, what do you do on a story like this? It's really difficult because so much of the information is coming from recruiters and consultants who have business interests in, in leaking information to stir things up at a law firm and try to place lawyers out of a, a firm that's ha- going through a transition or going through some trouble. So you really want to try to get the information from the direct source, which is ultimately one of the law firms, and try to get them to speak with you, at least on background, just about what's going on, coming into it from a, a stance of objectivity, stressing that you know you have no interest in you know which direction that the story heads one way or the other. So ultimately... The ideal situation would be for you know one of the firm's leaders to speak with you uh, and and confirm the information. But I guess the second best thing would be to to get the information from former partners or former associates or people who are just generally in the know and hearing it directly from their former colleagues. That's usually when we'll go to press with something when we get it to that level of information at least. So the hangup that you found in this was that a certain number of partners had to be a part of it. Is that right? There was some sort of uh, understanding that there would be a certain number of Dickstein Shapiro partners who would go along with the deal in order for it to make sense. Uh, That didn't end up happening, apparently. Our sources had told us that uh, I guess there was a certain number of Dickstein Shapiro partners that Brian Cave had deemed as really important that didn't end up going, didn't end up agreeing to uh, uh, staying with the combined entity for a certain period of time. So that being the case, there were wasn't a deal on the table. Another firm that's been getting a lot of attention is Kenyon and Kenyon. This is an intellectual property firm that dates back to 1879. Kenyon and Kenyon is led by Edward Colbert who happens to be the brother of Stephen Colbert. And they've been losing partners to their competitors, making the firm both a target for headhunters and creating speculation about the possibility that they could be forced to merge. Bring us up to date on what's been going on at Kenyon and Kenyon. It's been happening over the past year or so, at, at least. Um, we just begun started covering it over the past uh, few months. There have been a number of departures out of the firm. The firm has really winnowed down to a smaller size. And I spoke with Ed uh, a few days ago, and, and what he told me was that what's happening at the firm is really the result of uh, a number of uh, actions that that management has taken to downsize the firm, or, or as he said, right-size the firm, as, as managing partners love to say, and make itself more profitable. And that the challenges that the firm 
is facing are similar to the challenges that uh, any other number of IP-focused law firms out there are going through. So what's happening in in the IP landscape is that it's become more difficult to win patent cases uh, because of a number of different federal court rulings and and legislation that have happened with the American Invents Act. There's this new out-of-court proceeding called Inter Partes Review. I guess it's not that new anymore. It's a venue where parties can challenge the validity of patents and it's much cheaper than bringing cases in court. So defense attorneys have uh, suffered a blow because of that and and a number of other things. So Kenyon and Kenyon's challenges really aren't unique. Uh, There have been other firms with intellectual property practices that have been written about. uh, McCool Smith, for instance, uh, that's been covered, that firm has been covered in the Wall Street Journal is um, grappling with the same change in in business climate that Kenyon Kenton is dealing with right now. Dixney Shapiro actually similarly won a few different or at least two different major patent verdicts, uh, multi-million dollar verdicts that they were hoping to earn a significant number of fees from that ended up getting overturned in the the appeals process. And so I've spoken with uh, partners who worked there who say, who actually blame that as one of the big reasons why Dickstein is going through some troubles right now. So we're seeing this across all the IP firms with heavy patent practices? There have been a number of IP boutiques that have been acquired over the past year or so. So I th- yes, I think it's fair to say that you know we're, this is a change across the board. But at the same time, these partners are finding homes. These partners are going to other firms. That's a good point. Big law firms have built out have built out their practices to also staff lawyers who specialize in inter partes review. And it's not as lucrative as your traditional uh, patent litigation practice. But they've built out these specialties that are encroaching on the business of smaller firms and, and recruiting heavily from the boutiques. When you talk about boutiques, it's tough to call Kenyon and Kenyon a firm that ranks the Amla 200 a boutique, or do we refer to Kenyon and Kenyon as a boutique? It staffs, I think Ed told me, around 100 lawyers right now. So it's getting down there. A story that came out today, January 14th, I think goes to the importance of business of law coverage, to the importance of the business of law beat. Earlier this week, there were reports that Sidley Austin was going to triple the size of their Boston office, which should raise eyebrows in this legal market that we're in. And today we got a more mainstream business story. Tell me what happened there. GE is a, is a big client of Sidley Austin. That's you know publicly reported knowledge. Uh, we actually have a reporter who is uh, working on a story right now about how law firms in Boston are affected by GE's move to the city. I spoke with Peter Zoikhauser, a law firm consultant with Zoikhauser Group, and he said it's, it's really significant that it places competition on, on local firms, that, that big firms are, are going to want to be in the area. And actually, I just saw it reported uh, today that Wilson Sonsini has announced that they're going to open a Boston office. Now, whether they're doing that because of GE, we haven't um, gotten that from them yet, but we're, we're in the process of reporting. When you saw that story reported a couple of days ago, Sidley Austin, did you think to yourself, what's going on here? There's more to it? I knew that it was a story. I mean, they were tripling the size of their Boston office. You don't see that 
usually. Uh, it was pretty extreme, pretty extreme growth. So immediately assigned a reporter to it, tried to, try to figure out what's going on there. A day later, GE announces that they're moving their headquarters. To me, the answer was clear, but we'll see what the reporting turns out. Right. I just wonder if in retrospect, we can tell more. When we hear a story like that, if we shouldn't be able to put together that, oh, this is directly related to one of their clients. It has to be. Law firms are follow the money businesses and they, you know, they love to say that they go where their clients go. And I think that even though there's a certain degree of PR to that, it makes sense in some situations. Our last topic for today's podcast, per se, the restaurant that is considered one of the best in New York City, if not the world, was skewered in a restaurant review from the New York Times. Their critic wrote that the yam dumplings were not at all helped by the lukewarm mushroom bouillon that was as murky and appealing as bong water. So I know what you're thinking. Why are we talking about per se? Well, only a few days before the New York Times review, our colleague Blake Edwards also wrote about per se. It was our most read article over the first days and weeks of the new year. And to be fair, per se was just the backdrop. It was the scene for the first in a series of dinner parties of law firm leaders. Casey, tell me about these dinner parties where the first one kicked off at per se. Yeah, this was really a great story. Uh, Blake did a great job pulling it out. Jamie McKeon of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, uh, according to our reporting, put this whole thing together. Uh, the group meets every once in a while and trades information on the industry and, and their experience leading a major law firm and how to go about navigating the challenges that come with that. It's not unlike a number of other groups in, in the legal industry that meet on an occasional basis as well. You know, there have been knowledge management groups uh, between law firms that meet. I've heard uh, rumors about an elite group of managing partners, regardless of gender, meeting and discussing gossip that's going on in the industry and, and discussing firm strategies. I actually just spoke with uh, the other night, Linda Kornfeld. She's a partner at Kasowitz Benson, who told me that since 2009, she has been getting together with a group of eight partners, all from different law firms, all from different practice areas, who have been referring work to each other and have been helping each other out. So it's not unique, but I think that it was just so well read because these are the chairwomen at the AMLA 100. We hear over and over again about law and the established old boys network. And it's as if there is an old girls network or there's at least going to be one or starting to be one. It was interesting that any one of them can start the uh, can do the inviting, you know, just that this is happening. Yeah. W one thing that I kind of thought about when I read the story was at what point do they start saying, no, you can't join our group. And, you know, that was one thing that I hit on when I spoke with Linda was, you know, she said that they made a conscious decision to keep her uh, female lawyer group at uh, an eight part partner size. And while they'll have guests occasionally, they'll they'll bring guests to their meeting. They don't want to go above that. She said that people have even asked to join and, and they kind of just are hard about that fact that they aren't going to grow any further. So there's a degree of clubbiness to it, but it benefits them. And you, you know, you have to give them credit. Obviously, I was being a little cheeky with bringing in the New York Times review. But when I heard that and read that review, I thought that is just kind of amusing that per se, which is not the topic of a big law business story very often, happened to be mentioned in the same week one detail that was also interesting in the review was that these four people had dinner 
and the bill was close to $3,000. And I thought it was nice that Blake even mentioned what happens when these women get together. Who picks up the check? I guess they trade off, is what he said. That is all for this episode of Big Law Business. Please check out our website, biglawbusiness.com. You can comment and give us feedback on the podcast there or write to us. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. We are now up on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow me on Twitter at joshblocknyc. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore biglaw. The rest of the good folks who work on Big Law Business include Gabe Friedman. He writes for the site and oversees articles with Casey. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Philip Ramsey and Paige Connor take care of the design and technical stuff. Cassie Whiteside heads up the commercial side. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. And finally, Scott Mazarski oversees the whole Big Law business operation. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with another episode.